Well, it is good to see everybody this morning. I'm glad that you're here. Uh, you should be in Acts chapter 11. And uh, before we jump into our text, I just want to say a few things. Number one, uh, I hope you are excited for a break. Uh, I'm excited for a break. I feel like I've been running, and you probably feel like you've been running since back to school. And so time that we get to spend with friends and family over the next few days will be uh, hopefully treasured. Um, I'm looking forward to that as well. And I also just want to say uh, thank you to students and parents who were praying for us yesterday. So our 7th and 8th graders went to Clarkston, Georgia. We had, as Jay is pumping his fist, we had a phenomenal time uh, learning about all kinds of people groups, learning about refugees, what does it mean to be a refugee, uh, we did fun things in the community. We, we served the church there at Clarkson International Bible Church, getting them ready for a conference on Monday. Got to meet some great people. We ate some wonderful food. I will say I was only slightly disappointed that we went to an Indian Nepalese restaurant that had phenomenal food. And the vast majority of you got chicken fried rice. And, and I get it. I get it. You go with the safe bet. But man, you, some of y'all missed out. Um, if you want to know about the chicken tandoori, you can come ask me and some of the other girls because it was phenomenal. Um, but no, it was a great trip. Thank you for your prayers. Glad we're back. It was a full day. Um, so yeah, so this week, this week, we're revisiting the monumental event of Peter and Cornelius that we read about last week in Acts chapter 10. So Jews and Gentiles, Peter and Cornelius, enjoying fellowship seeing and receiving the Holy Spirit falling upon a household of Romans. And as we'll see today, although the Apostle Peter was a witness to that event, he was the one proclaiming the gospel to Cornelius and his household, the church in Jerusalem will affirm it and even become tangible beneficiaries or receivers of the gospel coming to the Gentiles Themselves. So if you're taking notes, the title of the message this morning is The Unity of the Church Confirmed. The Unity of the Church Confirmed. Unity is a massively important mark of the church, and it has been since the beginning. So way back in the early church, in the first few centuries of Christianity, uh, there were four major markers of what it meant for the church to be the church. The church is one, means that they are united. They're united in their faith. They're united in their mission. They're united in their practices. It is holy. They're, they're set apart from the world and they're morally upright. There's a holiness about the church. They are Catholic. And what we mean by that is not Roman Catholic, but the word Catholic just means universal, meaning there's, there's only one true church. There's not a church in Africa and a church in Asia and a church in America and they're different churches. There's, there's one. It's a Catholic church. And the church is apostolic, meaning that it is rooted in and grounded upon the teachings of the apostles, which we have for us in Scripture. So one holy Catholic apostolic. These are the early church marks. And unity, oneness, is what's on display in Acts chapter 11. We confess as Christians today, 2,000 years later, that the church is one. That doesn't mean it will always look the same. And we know this to be true uh, with churches even in our area, not to mention churches in other states, in other countries, on other continents. It's not going to always look the same, and it's not always going to have the exact same beliefs on things for which Christians can disagree. 
So there are brothers and sisters in churches in our area who think that baptism should be given to infants. We believe that baptism should be reserved for believers. There's a difference there, but we're all a part of one church, the united church under the lordship of Jesus. It means that the church strives for unity as they witness to the world what Christ has done to make peace where there once was no peace. We see that in Peter and Cornelius as individuals, and we're going to see that today um, among the church in Jerusalem and Gentiles as more corporate ideas. So let's read and see all of the themes of the book of Acts collide together in this chapter. So just to remind you, way back at the beginning when we started this book, we laid out seven themes in the book of Acts, right? The sovereignty of God over all things. That's number one. Number two, the reign of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Number three, the work of the Holy Spirit. Number four, the expansion of the word of God. Number five, the salvation of sinners by hearing that word. Number six, the sprouting up of new churches from those believers. And then number seven, the sending of witnesses to equip others and further expand the kingdom as they bear witness. We're going to see all of those things in this chapter. So let's read. There's two sections for us this morning. So let's get after it. Verse one. Now, the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying. And in a trance, I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent, me, uh, sent to me from Caesarea. And the spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me and we entered the man's house and he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Okay, let's pray it's a lot there. Let's pray before we unpack it and go further. God, we love you. We thank you for your grace. We agree with Sadie's prayer. Lord, help us. Be with us this morning. Open our eyes to see the truth of your word. Help me to teach with clarity and conviction and authority and help us by your spirit, Lord, to be changed 
and transformed and to see the glories of the gospel once again, but also to see the beauty of the unity of the church. Help us, God, to be brothers and sisters in Christ who make much of the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're taking notes this morning, here's the the first big idea from the first 18 verses of Acts 11. God is at work to save from every nation. We know this to be true uh, in principle, but Acts 10 and 11 are, are really flushing or fleshing that out for us uh, in a way that we can clearly see. God is at work to save from every nation. This first big chunk is the recounting of events between Peter and Cornelius, and it's the affirmation of the church in Jerusalem to say, yes, God is at work here. As we saw, the apostles and believers They obviously heard that something happened in verse 1. They heard that Gentiles had received the word of God. Now, if you're in Acts chapter 11, verse 1, turn your eyes up just two verses to Acts 10, 47. This is what Peter says after after the, the household of Cornelius believes the gospel. He says, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit, just as we have. So so Peter says in Acts 10.47, what did the Gentiles receive? The Holy Spirit. What does Luke say in verse 2? Or verse 1, rather. What did the Gentiles receive? The Word of God. So in Acts 10, Peter says they received the Holy Spirit. Acts 11, Luke tells us they received the Word of God. Here's the point I want you to, to see. The Word and the Spirit are always together. They're always together. The Spirit is not going to work outside of, apart from, contradictory to the Word of God. That's not to say that the Spirit's not going to do things in your life without your Bible being open. Well, of course, the Spirit might lead you and guide you, convict you of sin, do all sorts of things, but everything He will do in your life and in mine is in tight connection with the Word of God. He's going to point us to the Word of God. He's going to remind us of the Word of God. He's going to convict us according to the Word of God. The Word and the Spirit go together. But what the circumcision party, that is the believers in Jerusalem who thought you have to be circumcised, you have to follow the law in order to actually come to God. What these people were upset about was not that the Holy Spirit had come. It's not that they received the Word of the Lord. What were, they, what were they upset about? What did they criticize Peter for? You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Their frustration is with Peter crossing the dividing wall of hostility that we talked about last week and enjoying fellowship with people who are not like them. Enjoying fellowship with people that they would consider to be unclean. So Peter defends his actions. That is, he's defending that the Lord told him to do these things. He needed to see that vision that God gave him. Cornelius needed to hear the vision that God gave to Peter. And now the church in Jerusalem needs to see and hear this vision. This is the third time in two chapters that we've seen this vision described. It's a big deal. And this is one of the wonders of the gospel. You see, the circumcision party thought these Gentiles need to do some things before they can be saved. 
They need to get circumcised. They need to start following the law. They need to start following the dietary restrictions. They need to start following the traditions of our nation, of our people, before God can actually save them. And the wonder of the gospel to them is the wonder of the gospel to you and me. The gospel is open to everyone wherever they are. You come as you are. You don't work for the gospel. You don't clean yourself up to earn a right to hear the gospel and to believe. Salvation has come to the Gentiles just like it has come to the Jews at Pentecost. The word was proclaimed, the spirit fell, the people responded, and then they were baptized. So the same thing in Acts chapter 2 that happens at the day of Pentecost among the Jews in Jerusalem is happening now in Acts 10 and 11 among the Gentiles in Caesarea in Cornelius' house. Peter makes this connection himself. Look at verse 14. He says, uh, the Spirit says, he will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. That's a similar phrase that he says to the Jews in Acts 2. Then verse 15, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us in the beginning. The same thing is happening. The gospel is expanding to the nations. This is a massive shift in the expansion of the church. Jerusalem up until this point has been ground zero for the efforts of the church. And the gospel has been moving around primarily among the Jewish community. We're going to read about that in verse 19 and following in just a few minutes. We've seen instances of individual Gentiles coming to faith, like the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. And now we've seen a Gentile household come to faith, a man and his friends and his family all hearing the word and believing at the same time. And Peter, Peter gives his final summary of all this in verses 16 and 17, specifically verse 17. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I? that I could stand in God's way. The point Peter is trying to make is this. Brothers, I don't get to decide where God brings salvation. I don't get to decide who is going to repent and believe. I don't get to decide making these decisions as who deserves to hear the gospel and who doesn't deserve to hear the gospel. What I've been called to do is go and bear witness, go and proclaim, go and share Christ and let God do what only God can do. And that silences the circumcision party. Verse 18, when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God. No further questions. Right? They've seen and heard what God has done. Peter's table fellowship with the Gentiles is now justified because God has granted them repentance that leads to life. Jew or Gentile, Israelite or Roman, they are now one in Christ. And the good news for you and me today is that he still does this. God is the one who grants the gifts of repentance that leads to life. So we just need to stop for just a moment and not presume that because you go to Lakeview, because your family is Christian, that you have received this gift. 
I don't want to presume just because you come to church every Sunday that you could say with confidence what Peter has said, what Cornelius can now said, what members of his household can now say. And that is, I heard the word of God and received it. I heard the word of God. I heard the gospel. I heard about Jesus and the Holy Spirit opened my eyes to believe it. He granted me the gift of turning from my sin, that's repentance, and turning to Christ, it's faith. So, so two questions. Number one, have you received this gift? I cannot tell you whether or not you have received this gift. Your mom and your dad ultimately cannot tell you whether or not you have received this gift. We can see the fruit of your life, but have you received this gift? And if you have, follow-up question, how often do you remember that it was actually a gift from God? How often do you remember, I did not deserve to know this. I did not deserve to hear and believe. I did not deserve, this is not something owed to me. This is not something I'm entitled to. This is all a gift of God's grace. Do I live my life as a Christian underneath this truth? All of it is God's grace. All of it is God's gift to me. All of it is God's mercy in my life. Because if I don't, and if you don't, and you think that believing the gospel is something that you're entitled to because you're from Auburn, or something that you're entitled to because you're American, or something that you're entitled to because your mom and dad are Christians, then you'll start to think that God owes you other things that he doesn't. It's all grace. So from here on out, we're going to witness a rapid expansion of the gospel to the ends of the earth or to the edges of the known world in the time of the Roman Empire. So let's, let's keep going. Verse 19. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke with the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch for a whole year. They met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. All right, so the second scene, verse 19, begins with the word now. And if you read the Gospel of Luke, you read the book of Acts, that word now, we often think like now means now, and it does. But Luke uses that word to, to tell us that there's a shift in time. So like now this, and then now this, and then now this. So verse 1 of Acts 11 
starts with the word now. It's a shift in time. Verse 19 is a shift in time. Now, this is what happens. So we've seen that God is at work to save from every nation. And then number two, what we're going to see here is the body of Christ is united yet distinct. So God is saving from every nation and the body of Christ, the church is united. They are one, but they are distinct. There's distinction in the body. So the second big chunk of our text this morning is the expansion of the church to the Gentile city of Antioch and the establishment of a Gentile dominant, not individual, not household, but now a Gentile dominant church. We've seen the sovereignty of God in getting Peter and Cornelius together for these divine visions. We've seen the risen Lord Jesus as the one who forgives sin and brings salvation. The Spirit has brought the word to bear on sinners and give them the gift of faith and repentance. And those believers are now going out to share the gospel from the church in Jerusalem to people who need Jesus. And now these believers are forming a new church in a new place. So it begins with believers reaching out to the Jews. You look at that, verse 19. Because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, believers went to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch and everywhere in between, but they only spoke the word to the Jews. They only spoke the gospel to people who understood the scriptures. They only spoke the gospel to people who already were claiming to follow the God of Israel, the God of the Bible. But for some reason, verse 20, there were some of them. Men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch, also spoke to the Hellenists. That is the Greeks, the Gentiles. And here's what's interesting. We don't know their names. I mean, we don't know who these people are. We don't know where they're from. I mean, we know that they're from Cyprus and Cyrene, but we don't know what church they were a part of. We don't know how they came to faith. We don't know uh, how they were connected to the apostles. We don't know how they were sent out. We don't know what they did for a living. All we know is that there were some men who went and preached the gospel to Gentiles. We don't know their names. We don't know what all they did. But we know, according to this text, the hand of the Lord was on them. And we know that the Lord used these unnamed believers in their witness to bring about a church in Antioch, which is maybe lost on us, but Antioch is the third largest city in the Roman Empire. I mean, it's a massive metropolis of diversity and culture and industry and enterprise and so much influence, so much opportunity, so much paganism and sin and wickedness. And yet because these unnamed believers saw fit to preach the gospel to these Gentiles in Antioch, sinners were saved. The early church in Jerusalem was now not the only major church because in Antioch, a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Now, like Peter and Cornelius, a report goes back to the church in Jerusalem. Hey, there's there's something happening in Antioch. Uh, some of these guys went and go preach the gospel to the Gentiles, and now these Gentiles are gathering together. They're forming their own church. What do we do? And the church affirmed this move and went and sent Barnabas. Now, we met Barnabas a couple of chapters ago. He's the son of encouragement. He's also from Cyprus. 
He goes to Antioch to see what's going on. He was highly regarded. He was skilled. The scripture says he's a good man. He's full of the Holy Spirit, an encourager. He had a discernment for the grace of God. He was the one who was kind of the the advocate for the apostle for Paul, right? Before he came to the apostles. And so Barnabas goes to this church in Antioch. He goes to these Gentile believers and he sees the grace of God and exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord. And as he stayed there, it says a great many people were added to the Lord. Again, like Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, we're now seeing Gentiles, that is non-Jews, at a rapid pace in large numbers coming to faith very quickly. Something is happening. God is at work. The church is expanding, and it's not only going to be Jews. And yet, Barnabas, this skilled, godly, discerning man, this man who was filled with the Holy Spirit, a great encourager, a great exhorter, sees this work happening and goes, I need some help. I can't do this on my own. I can't do this by myself. And so he goes to Tarsus to find Saul. Even someone gifted and skilled knew that ministry like this is not something to do alone. And those two men, Barnabas and Saul, taught in the church for a whole year. And over that time, that church grew in their faith, in their love for Jesus, in their commitment to being in the world, but not of the world, and more. And these followers of the way, these saints, these believers are now given a new name for the first time in the Bible. Not the believers in Jerusalem. Those believers were not given this name. The Gentile believers in Antioch were given this name. And the name is Christian. We call ourselves Christians. We like Christ. We get what that means. And if someone calls you a Christian, we usually take that as a kind of encouragement. We usually say, Nice. They see my faith. They see my behavior. They see my good actions. They hear my words and they can tell that I'm a Christian. I'm like Christ. I believe in Jesus. It was not a term of endearment. It was not a term of encouragement. It was most likely a name of derision in the pagan city they lived in. You have all these people living in one way, and now out of nowhere, your friend, your sister, your husband, your aunt, your neighbor, these people start to live a very different kind of life. And although they are loving and respectful and gentle and great neighbors, as the history of uh, the early church tells us, it brings conviction to those who have not believed. And so the name they give these people, oh, those are the Christians. Those are the people who want to be like that Jesus from Jerusalem. Those are the people who want to be Christian. This happens all because some nameless believers spoke up and shared Christ. There's a man named John Carney. John um, has been pastor of a 
a very, very small church called Blue Ridge uh, for decades. That church probably has not very many more people than, than the people in this room. It's in a small town, rural community, not a lot of influence. You're not going to see his name at a conference. You're not going to hear about him on the news. You're not going to read a book that John Carney published. In fact, you're going to probably look at John Carney and think, nothing special. He's not somebody that you would remember. He's not somebody that you would know. He's not somebody that you would stumble upon and say, man, that John Carney guy is the kind of person I want to be like. He's not a role model that many people know about. In, in, in very real ways, he's an unnamed, unimportant Christian. And in the eyes of the world, he's not very successful. He's been a pastor for decades at a small church that has remained small. In the eyes of the world, they're going to look at that and go, what, what's, what's he not doing? What's he doing wrong? Why isn't it growing? What's the problem? Well, in 2001, John Carney leads a vacation Bible school that summer, same way that he always leads vacation Bible school at the little church, Blue Ridge. And he does what you and I have heard so many times before. He, he talks about the ABCs of being a Christian. Admit that you are a sinner. Believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Confess your faith in Jesus as your Savior and Lord. And, and John is not a, a captivating speaker. He, he's not somebody that you look at with awe. He, he's, he is a stereotypical Southern Baptist preacher. He's got glasses. He has a huge mustache. And he's talking to all these kids about being a Christian. Nothing flashy. There's no real decorations. There's no dancers. There's no volunteers who are youth who are helping these kids get the songs or the motions. It's just John on a stage talking about Jesus. But I'm sitting in the back of the church and I hear John say, if you've never admitted that you're a sinner and you've never actually confessed that you believe that Jesus is the son of God, if you've never confessed your faith in Jesus as the Lord of your life, you can do that right now. You don't have to wait till you're older. If you understand those things, you can be a Christian today. And for the first time, having heard it many times before, I heard. I heard the gospel because John Carney was faithful to proclaim it. You'll never meet John Carney. And I don't tell you the story to make it seem like I'm awesome. But in a very real sense, in the providence of God, there is a good kind of debt that you owe to his faithfulness. And that story can be compounded and multiplied and expanded generation after generation after generation. 
And just because John doesn't have a legacy in the eyes of the world does not mean that when he goes to meet his Savior face to face, he might also meet an untold number of people who came to faith, who grew in their faith, who became pastors and ministers and missionaries and stay-at-home moms who were faithful and doctors and teachers, all because he was faithful here. And the same is true for you. You have no idea how God is going to use your faithfulness to him. You have no idea. I mean, John had no idea 20 some odd years ago, man, I'm going to preach this gospel and there's going to be a pastor that comes from this. And he's going to have at least a couple of years of faithful ministry. Lord might take me home today. All he knew was, I believe this word. I believe it brings life to those who are dead. And I believe that unless they hear, they won't believe. So I'm going to preach to these kids. And you may have people in your life that you might say, man, they don't, they're not really interested. They don't really want to know these things. But just like Peter, who am I to stand in God's way? Who are you to stand in God's way? And what the church in Jerusalem does for the church in Antioch is affirms God is at work in your lives just as he has been at work in ours. And we know the expansion of the gospel that's taking place here, and we pray and hope that the expansion of the gospel will take place there. And that affirmation, while distinct, Jews and Gentiles, Jerusalem and Antioch, this is one church doing one thing, proclaiming and witnessing the glories of Jesus to the ends of the earth. And while the church in Jerusalem affirms the validity of the Christians in Antioch, they themselves become the beneficiaries. Look at verse 27. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. The Jewish believers in Jerusalem affirmed and equipped the Antioch church. And now time shift when Agabus goes and prophesies that there's a great famine coming and the church in Jerusalem will struggle immensely with this famine. There's now another church. There's now another church that has means that can send relief to their brothers and sisters in a different place because they realize and recognize that the church maintains its unity, serves and encourages one another and recognizes that although they are different, they are all members of the one church of Jesus Christ, Jew or Gentile, Baptist or Methodist. They are all in Christ. And this must be our posture as well when we think about believers in our church and other churches around us. We are not the same. We're not the same. 
And there's not anybody in this room who's the same as you. There's not anybody in this church who's the same as you. But that does not mean we cannot be one. It doesn't mean we can't be united. And there is not a church in Auburn other than Lakeview like Lakeview. There's not a church in the world like Lakeview other than this one. But do we pray for them? Do we celebrate when they grow? Do we try to help them when needs arise? Because that is who we are. And of course, there will be disagreements. I love Covenant Presbyterian Church. I think they're wrong on baptism. Don't baptize your babies. It's not baptism. That's fine. But they believe the gospel. They witness to the risen Lord Jesus. I, I couldn't be a member of a lot of churches in our community that I pray God would bless. We're on the same team because there's one church. This local congregation is massively important. And when you read the New Testament, Paul and the apostles are talking to local congregations, but that's not to the neglect of the fact that they are writing and saying, hey, send this to the other churches. Hey, do this for the other churches. Hey, encourage this other church in this. Hey, these elders are doing these things. Why don't you go help do those things? The unity of the church in Acts 11 is confirmed. My prayer is that we would see fit to find the unity of the church maintained. 